Voice Nation. Greetings, Device Nation, your home for ideas, stories, and interviews to take you from zero to 135 degrees of flexion with no recorded incidents of mid-flexion instability. This is Kevin Brown, your purveyor of all things metal and plastic. I hope you're having a great day. I know I certainly did. Today is a very special episode as we're going to get to talk to the first African-American graduate of Stanford Medical School and surgical resident at Yale, Vietnam combat surgeon, recipient of the 2006 Diversity Award with the AAOS, master of the Oliver Wendell Holmes Society at Harvard, developer and former president of the Gladden Society, spine surgeon, author, and I am just getting warmed up. Of course, we are talking about Dr. Augustus White. You're going to want to hang around for that very special conversation. Well, let's pick up on where we left off last week. It's our FBI special agent series inspired by Device Nation guest, Dr. Greg Vecchi, former head of the FBI Behavioral Science Unit. We started out the series talking about the OODA loop, and if you were taking notes, it was the Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And as a quick recap, this decision-making tool was developed for combat theater operations, tactical scenarios, firearms training, even medical device. Well, not really, but we're going to use it today. So last week, we touched upon this decision-making flowchart, so to speak, utilized in the operating room, keeping in mind that there are three steps before ACT that we observe, we actively observe, we gather information looking at different possibilities before we make a decision, and then and only then do we act. So here's a real-life example outside of the operating room of the OODA loop in play. I went to the front of the hospital for my daily temp screen, got asked all the typical questions, fever, cough, shortness of breath, yeah, yeah, yeah. I stopped the screener mid-screen and said, look, you probably all need to know I got a fever. The three people standing there, including the security guard, literally took a step back. I continued. And the only prescription is more cowbell. I literally heard crickets. I thought I had just delivered with just great comic timing the funniest line that they were going to hear all day. And boy, was I wrong. So number one, I couldn't believe that nobody's done that joke before. It just seemed like low-hanging fruit to me at the moment. But had I done a correct OODA loop, I would have made the observation that everybody at that front door was under the age of 25 and most likely had never seen Saturday Night Live and did not fully appreciate the comic gold that I just handed to them at 5.45 in the morning. A dad joke is a good joke, right? Well, Valentine's Day turned into a bit of a joke for me, given one particular item that was in the gift bag for my wife. She's got this thing about coffee mugs that have to be a particular shape. I I haven't found one in the wild ever until this year. It said happily ever after on it with a heart. I thought, this is awesome. She's going to love it. She said absolutely nothing about this particular item for a few days until finally 
A comment was made about me waiting to the last minute for gift giving. And as I probed her objections, see this rep stuff helps you across the board. It led to the coffee mug. Surprisingly, I actually breathed a sigh of relief because this was a defensible hill I was fully prepared to die on until she asked me, did you look at it? It said, just married on the other side. The other side. I didn't even think there was an other side on something circular. I never saw it. I observed the mug, but I blew the Orient part of the OODA loop, gathering all relevant information. Now, if you're wondering, the marriage will survive this mug. We had a great laugh about it later once I explained everything. I love this quote by author Gary Smalley. Life is relationships. The rest is just details. I agree with that. So let's look briefly at what observe, orient, decide, and act means in relationships, the relationships you have with your HCPs. Let's set up a talking point with a quick story. I was in a case once with a tech that was the best of the best. I had been in hundreds of knees with this guy, and except for the box opener part, he truly did not need me there. On this particular case, we got all the implants open, mixed cement, got the tibia in check, put cement on the femur, went to implant it. It wouldn't go on. The surgeon said a few choice words that I won't repeat here, and then looked at me and said, I forgot to drill the lug holes. A quick panic would ensue as we scraped the cement off the femur, got the finishing guy back on, drilled the lugs, reimplanted the femur, and I believe the cement set up about 15 seconds after we clamped the patella. Needless drama that had nothing to do with the surgeon or my super tech. That was on me. And why is what I want to talk about for just a second. Write this down and frame it. The first casualty of familiarity is active observation. The first casualty of familiarity is active observation. When you get too comfortable in a relationship, it is easy to check out on the observation and fact gathering, isn't it? So in the OR that particular day, I got too comfortable with someone else's competence and capabilities, ironically, and it led me to believe that I could kind of check out a little bit on the observation and fact gathering side of the OODA loop, and boy, was I wrong. You've been married 10, 20, 30 years. Do you really need to observe anymore? Do you need to orient anymore? Do you need to look at the other side of the coffee cup anymore? Yes. You're at a hospital that has used your company's product exclusively for 25 years. Do you really need to be tactically paranoid, so to speak? Yes. Yogi Berra, always good for a great quote, said, You can observe a lot by watching. Painfully obvious. Most of his quotes are painfully obvious. But can't we slide on the watching part? After the sheer repetition of things over time, if you want to do a forensic analysis of where so many relationships break down, a lot of it starts right here. You stop courting, you stop listening, you stop watching, you stop gathering information. Amidst familiarity, you stop dating the person on the other side. They'll always be there. Just know that the price of a healthy, functional relationship is eternal vigilance. Active observation, active gathering of information every day, all day. Why? Because we want to bring the maximum value to every relationship in and out of that hospital. 
You can say I care all day long, but it's our deeds that really deliver that message to our HCPs and the relationships around us. A message that begins with the first two O's of our OODA loop. Well, if you're taking note there, that leaves us with a D and an A, which leads us right into Dr. Augustus White, a truly inspiring life story. You're really going to enjoy this one today. Check out his book. It just got released on Amazon, Overcoming. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So let's get right to it. Welcome to the show, Dr. White. Well, I'm so happy to be here. It, it's uh, good to have a chance to talk about things that one's interested in. It's always good when someone else is also interested. So, And I, I appreciate the opportunities to chat with you and hopefully uh, uh, answer some of your questions and have some good dialogue with you. I look forward to that. I had a meeting the other day with a few rep friends of mine, and we were recounting our heroes. And Dr. White, you are one of mine. I, I so look forward to sharing your story with my audience and look forward to asking you about your books, your tour in Vietnam, your incredible career as a spine surgeon. But first, let's go back to Northfield, Massachusetts. What was it like growing up in the White household? My dad passed away uh, when I was uh, 10 years old. So I, I lived with my mom and with her sister and her husband. So I spent time with that household, and we spent some time later on in, in, a, in a smaller house with my mom. So I had a good family. My aunt's uh, husband was a pharmacist, and uh, he had a drugstore, and uh, he worked in his drugstore every day. And I learned to go there frequently with him, and I'd go with him to deliver prescriptions. So I had a nice, a really good relationship with him as as a a male role model, I thought. Uh, My aunt, his wife, was a a school teacher in in the public school system in Memphis. And my mom was a school teacher and also a librarian in that public school system. So I grew up in that environment. My dad had been a physician. And our friends and colleagues were, I guess you'd say, a a black middle-class community in segregated Memphis, very, very segregated Memphis. Issues of race were always part of the spectrum of of my life, and it was all, much of it was very sort of natural and and, uh, clear, enjoyable as well. Uh, The the culture of of Memphis and the South included uh, a lot of music, a lot of fun, a lot, a lot of uh, activities. I was growing up with my friends and classmates and all, and uh, you know, we 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 lived in the segregated world and took it for granted. Uh, but the people in the community who were respected, you know, were were the teachers, were the business people, were the ministers, always uh, people who were. Uh, delivering and, and manifesting uh, racial pride, I guess I would say, and and striving for racial justice and striving to do what they were doing as well as they could. Oftentimes, uh, not just in a personal context, but as I said, in terms of what it contributed to the positive image of, of race, you know, and, and even as you're growing up, you know, people who were African-American of the same race, if they were not presenting themselves well or, or you know, uh, were playing into racial, negative racial stereotypes, 
you know, they weren't as respected as the people who did the opposite. And that was just sort of my background uh, mentality. It wasn't, uh, you know, much of it was kind of natural and, and went on and, and seemed, seemed normal to me because I didn't know anything else. I'm very happy for my exposure to that, and I recognize it very clearly, its disadvantages, but I guess what I'm reflecting is its advantages. I, I mean, it, we had a sense of purpose, we had a sense of pride, we had a sense of justice, uh, we understood justice <laughs> and injustice, of course. Those are some of my impressions of my growing up. Uh, athletics were very important. Football was major, uh, the major sport. I would say generally I had a, um, a happy life. I, I started early working. Uh, work was part of my agenda. Um, at a young age, I, I had a paper route. I sold newspapers. And as I said, I, I would work a little bit in my, in my uncle's drugstore. Uh, I never really took serious on the payroll type work there, but I learned to wait on customers if I was around and enjoyed uh, that atmosphere as well. And as I said, my mom and my aunt were both school teachers. And I, and I said, my dad was a physician. And uh, so that, that was kind of the way I would structure the environment as, as I was growing up in Memphis. I want to take a super quick detour because you brought up the word music. Yes. And uh, music was just going crazy back then. I, I'm curious. We, we play a lot of music in the operating room. If I was to have you put together a playlist for me, what, what's a couple groups that were really uh, influential? Oh, my, my, my. Gosh, there, there are just so many that I liked and enjoyed. B.B. Uh, King, uh, uh, Booker T and the MGs, and uh, my goodness, uh, I, I liked Harold Belafonte. I liked uh, jazz, uh, you know, Miles Davis and the, the, the great jazz orchestras, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. But I liked all kinds of music, too. I liked Latin music. Somewhere along the way, I guess we actually had music appreciation in the public school system. So I got some I remember that. classical music, which I enjoyed and appreciated. Um, and I liked uh, the, the real ethnic uh, Memphis blues, right? You know, Beale Street, of course, was right in the middle of oh, yeah. town in my life. And we we occasionally get to see artists like B.B. King as he was coming along and coming through the system. I'm not a musician myself. I wish I was. I took some piano lessons, but my my piano teacher, I'm not blaming her, but she was too mean for me. I didn't, couldn't get along with her. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I, I, I do like music, and uh, you know I like pianists, uh, George Shearing, and uh, even to this day, uh, I spent a lot of a amount of time enjoying and, and looking at music for Following it, uh, there's certainly plenty of it on television, and it's interesting too how uh, you know as I was growing up, the black and the white music was pretty separate in a sense. It, it, people we pretty sensitive to the differences, but but early on as things were evolving, uh, there was a lot of crossover, of course, as you are well aware. So it broadened my opportunity for enjoyment of. of uh, 
great deal of different types of uh, music. So you would move on from Northfield, Massachusetts to Brown University. And I I was just curious, did you know going into Brown that you wanted to pursue that path to medicine? And and was your father kind of an inspiring figure on that path? For me, really, I don't don't know if it's a meaningful kind of statement or observation, but I think I was really uh, just naturally inclined for medicine. <laughs> I, I I guess I have a lot of uh, sense of empathy. I like people. <laughs> uh, not that everybody doesn't to varying degrees, but uh, I did. And my dad did have an impact, of course. People would say, oh, yeah, what are you going to be when you grow up, boy? You're going to be a, a doctor like your dad? He, You know, he's a good man. He was a good doctor. Is that what you're going to do? And, and I, I would... Well, yeah, I think I'd like to do that. And the reasons I think some of it, I mean, of course, having a, a, a father in, in, in the family who's a physician is a major influence. But I also, you know, when we play cowboys and Indians, uh, play uh, gangsters, or play shoot 'em ups, you know, using our imagination, I, I always felt a lot of compassion for, for the people who were, who were getting hit or whatever. And and I, I, I think that was meaningful. I don't know. I mean, I'm just as I think back on it. So I thought I wanted to be a, a, a physician. That was my sense of it. That was where I sort of wanted to go and was thinking about that as I went away. And, and the Northfield, Mount Hermon part, I, I, I went to public segregated schools in Memphis up through the eighth grade. And in the ninth grade is when I came to Massachusetts to Northfield Mount Hermon, which is the prep school in Massachusetts. Okay. I did very much at that time consider that kind of a mature ambition. The reason I say that is I, I can remember courses, two, two or three courses I had a chance to choose when I was a first-year student, ones that I thought were or were labeled as helpful if you wanted to go into medicine or whatever. They were harder courses than you know, easier courses. And and the fact that I chose a harder course at age 13 is part of my answer to your question, that it was kind of a mature, real decision and real ambition at that time. Nobody knew, you know, no advisors. My parents didn't know which courses. And I picked a couple of the harder ones because they were so-called help you you know, in terms of science background and so forth. You would go on to Stanford for medical school. What led you to the other side of the country, and what was your experience like there? I was really very, very happy and uh, excited uh, that I was able to, to, to go to Stanford Medical School. It's a small medical school, but it was very well-respected even then. California had a sort of a romantic appeal to me and uh, the thought of being in California and so forth. So I, I was uh, very happy. I went to, you know, I applied, applied to several different medical schools. Uh, actually, I, I was on the waiting list for Harvard. When I got the letter, got the letter of, uh, of acceptance from Stanford, I was so uh, excited. I accepted immediately and I never found out whether I would have gotten in Harvard or not. <laughs> whether, <laughs> I, I could have waited to see what would have happened, but I, I didn't wait to find out what the waiting list was going to do to me or for me. But uh, I was happy. I was happy uh, with with my application to Harvard as well. It was, it was interesting. Harvard at that time, the dean of admissions interviewed 
students, it was an agreement between the two schools, between Stanford and Harvard. The dean of admissions at, at Harvard interviewed Stanford applicants and vice versa. You know, people who were out in the West Coast and it was hard for them to travel back to Harvard. The dean of admissions at the medical school at Stanford apparently would interview for them. So it was uh, kind of an interesting thing and uh, kind of a question of curiosity. But I was actually, uh, as part of my application to Harvard, I was given literally a Stanford Binet IQ test. I don't know how many Harvard Medical School applicants were given that test. And the question is whether they were dubious, scared, frightened, conservative about admitting me uh, for fear that, you know, on some kind of racial bias, conscious or unconscious, that I couldn't conceivably be smart enough to go to Harvard Medical School. I don't know the answer to that, but it's, it's interesting to speculate. And it's also interesting that the dean must have given me a good recommendation because Stanford accepted me, in, in fact, and gave me a scholarship. So the beat goes on. But I, I love Stanford Medical School. And uh, as much as I like and respect my institution that I now work for, which is Harvard Medical School, I was really happy that I ended up going to Stanford. You would go on to Yale for your orthopedic fellowship. I have known one surgeon in my life that came from that program. And I was just curious, what said to you, orthopedics, that's what I want to do, and then uh, and then following that road down to spine? Well, uh, first of all, my, my ambition for a good part of my time, uh, even in medical school, was to be a psychiatrist. I majored in psychology and uh, enjoyed uh, the, the privilege of graduating with, with, with high honors in psychology. I wrote a thesis and did research, had a wonderful mentor, uh, Dr. Anthony Davis, who had gone to Harvard himself as an undergrad, uh, but was professor of psychology at uh, Brown. That was my goal. But when I got, when I got into um, to medical school and began to float around and, and meet people, I, I still had a lot of interest in, in, in psychiatry. But I began, I, my heroes, uh, a lot, more and more of them seemed to be surgeons. <laughs> and uh, I began to have, uh, you know, uh, interest in surgery and admiration for surgeons, some of my uh, two or three of my major role models were really uh, excellent surgeons and excellent physicians. I kind of uh, drifted uh, more and more towards surgery and recognized, I guess, I could enjoy psychology by going to the theater. You did a presentation entitled, War is Hell, the Human Spirit is Indomitable, and you earned the right to make that presentation. Oh, boy. As as you joined the Army as a combat surgeon in 1966, number one, thank you for your service to our country. You're welcome. And uh, number two, just tell me about that experience. Wow. In three minutes or less. Uh, okay. Well, God. Well, the, the title, you know, the title, you, you, I guess, says a lot of it. It certainly introduces it. It's uh, iterations, uh, ex, you know, extrapolating from that title is uh, things like the following. I, uh, I think if, if world leaders could spend uh, three to five days uh, with a uh, combat surgeon or in the military hospital even and working closely with with one individual and walking around 
and and seeing what they do and seeing for whom they're doing it. And it should be a routine thing. It should be funded by some wonderful philanthropists and transportation paid and, and fly people in and let them hang out with a combat surgeon for a few days. I think there would be fewer wars. I think right. people don't know what they talk about, what they're talking about, uh, thinking about, or recommending, or deciding about. They don't know the reality. You know, a president or any any leader, anybody who makes decisions about wars, uh, oughtn't to make those decisions unless they a have been in one, b have taken care of people who've been who've been in one. So I'm just saying that the horror of war. The inhumanity of war is uh, unparalleled. And uh, I've learned, I've come to learn even later, reflecting back, and I'm not a historian, I wish I were, but in wars, I think throughout history, throughout the world, there are no winners. There are only losers and greater losers. I mean, nobody wins a war with no loss, with no pain, with no suffering, with not a tremendous amount of loss or pain and suffering. So winning, it's better if you end up supposedly as a winner, but that only means that you didn't, you didn't lose as much as the loser lost. And uh, so the reality of it is uh, diluted tremendously uh, for everyone, but those who are actually in it, of course. So that's, that's part of my reflection from a, a, a year in uh, in Vietnam, taking care of people all day, every day, working with their what's left of their mutilated bodies and and oftentimes mutilated minds and spirits. It, it's just a human terrible reality, and uh, probably isn't going to go away for a while. But uh, there's no harm in advocating to try to help it to go away and help us to be able to resolve our differences without having to go to that mutilation of, of our fellow humans. I've heard about lepers my entire life, and I understand that you actually worked in Vietnam with a leper colony, and that would lead to a Bronze Star. I would love to hear that story. We went back and forth in one day, in one week. The leper colony is only uh, you know, about seven miles from the, the, from the uh, evacuation hospital. So I might work uh, 24, 48 hours debriding wounds, what's left of people's bodies to get the dirt and dust and filth out of the wounds and cut out the dead muscles so they don't get infected and and try to help set it up so the patient can recover and at least save their life, uh, if, if not their limb. And sometimes their limb can be saved. And there I was recognizing, as I just tried to describe for you, man's inhumanity to man and then you go to the leper colony and there are these individuals who with their families are able thanks to the care of the 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 nuns uh, the catholic nuns who volunteered to to live there and take care of them they could bring their families in and they could live in this leper serum in this leper colony of course, uh, you know, the biblical descriptions and, and some of the things that we know of leprosy is in some cultures, people will not even look at a person with leprosy, not to mention show some human compassion. They are just uh, 
uh, oftentimes excluded and in some ways less than human just because they're repulsed. They, they make people uncomfortable to varying degrees. So it, it became obvious we were walking back and forth or riding back and forth, driving back and forth uh, from day to day sometimes uh, when we could have the capacity with lots of good volunteerism, by the way, on the part of nurses and corpsmen to help us to to take the material out to be able to have little clinics actually in this in this leprosarium and and treat patients and even do some surgery out there. We uh, eventually think things evolved to the point that that was possible. But the point I'm trying to make is we're going boom boom back and forth from the combat surgeon hospital to the leprosarium uh, wards and, and and care. So we look at man's inhumanity to man. And then the next day, we look at nature's inhumanity to man. To be afflicted with leprosy is inhumane. I mean, you, you your face may be mutilated, your whole, you know, nose and mouth and everything may just, in worst cases, worst, worst cases, just you just have a big hole there instead of a, a, a face because the, the, the tissues have been eaten away. And the nerves are, are, are impacted tremendously and uh, it makes you crippled, uh, makes you unable to take care of yourself to a large, large degree because if something's eating your toes or cutting your toes or destroying your toes or your foot, you don't feel it. So it, the process goes and, and you may ultimately lose that limb. So we bounce back and forth between trying to combat and take care of Nature's inhumanity to man, and in the combat zone, man's inhumanity to man. And also, uh, there is the residual part of human nature, however, and uh, that gets over into the zone of religion as well, tends to uh, give you some element of survival, some element of of, of pushback uh, to these uh, terrible threats. We all have, as part of our common humanity, some ability for resilience, uh, many different iterations of opportunity for resilience. And uh, to some degree, we see elements of this even as we look for, look after these uh, patients with leprosy as they express their tremendous gratitude and appreciation for the kind of kindness and service that the nuns offer them and that we as physicians and nurses from the military hospital offered them when we visited to treat them. Well, you brought up uh, religion. We had a notable day last week, Martin Luther King Day, and the 60s were a very turbulent time. And uh, I was just curious what your perspective was uh, on that during the late 60s. Uh, What were your reflections upon him? I'm, I'm overwhelmed even to this moment with gratitude and appreciation and inspiration for an experience that I had uh, when I was a resident in uh, surgery in uh, at Presbyterian Medical Center in San Francisco. Uh, Dr. King visited uh, Oakland, California, uh, invited in by a trade union and a large outpouring of individuals who came to the church to hear him speak along with his colleague, Reverend Abernathy, a uh, wonderful uh, 
human being. Because I was uh, kind of a protege, a mentee of one of the African-American surgeons who had been sponsoring this program to bring Dr. King in, I had a chance to go to a breakfast uh, at, at that time. You know, I was there with Dr. King. I didn't uh, really talk with him, but I, I was sitting there listening and watching and observing and was just totally enthralled and, and, and impressed. And, and to this day, I just remember being having been in his presence. And it was a wonderful experience. And of course, I knew about him and his teaching and his uh, uh, impact on the world. Uh, and so I'm forever grateful uh, for that experience. And it, it's an ongoing source of, of, of inspiration. I did get a chance later to uh, to meet uh, his wife briefly and to meet his father. We actually, uh, uh, we did a textbook called Clinical Biomechanics of the Spine. And uh, we uh, dedicated it in part to uh, Reverend King, Dr. King, at later, some years later, doc, uh, after his, his son, Dr. Martin Luther King, was not alive at that time, but we went to Atlanta and we were able to uh, meet uh, Coretta King and his uh, dad. Uh, so that I, that's... Uh, a sparkling uh, uh, memory that that uh, continues to inspire me and uh, help me to appreciate even more other people like Dr. King, who are just wonderful, iconic leaders. You took a little detour in 1970. I don't run into too many people that have an MD and a PhD behind their name. What motivated you to head over to Sweden for that and get that particular degree? Well, it, uh, one of the things you, I um, sincerely and respectfully and gratefully uh, acknowledge that um, I've had a generous amount of darn good luck <laughs> in my life. I mean, just stone outright good luck. And uh, one of those good lucks was uh, that through a series of, of good luck, <laughs> I had a chance to meet uh, a Dr. Wayne Southwick, a distinguished professor of orthopedic surgery at Yale Medical School. And through uh, some happenstances, I met a person, another orthopedic surgeon, Anyway, long story short, who helped me to interview, to get interviews, to get a residency. And among those interviews that the first person that I was working for, uh, the individual I was working for at Case Western Reserve, uh, helped me to get some interviews uh, to get an orthopedic residency. And he helped among those people we had on the list that he arranged for me to go for an interview with uh, Dr. Wayne Southwick who essentially gave me my career. He gave me my residency at Yale, and he gave me a number of, uh, as an engaged mentor, good advice, good recommendations, uh, good suggestions, good guidance. And uh, he, he was a quintessential academician, uh, very well respected in the field of orthopedics. Uh, so, so I did a residency in his program and he got to know me and so forth. And it turned out that he was interested in 
a field called biomechanics, and biomechanics was really applying engineering principles and techniques uh, to um, uh, clinical problems and to understanding normal anatomic functions and normal functions of the of the human skeleton, the human body, and he wanted to strengthen that in his Yale orthopedic program. He wanted the teaching of his residents and people in that program to be better. We were somehow aware of uh, a professor, Carl Hirsch, who was a distinguished Swedish professor and easily the leading professor and teacher of, of biomechanics as relates to the skeletal system and to orthopedics and to clinical orthopedics. So we knew about him and Dr. Southwick arranged for me to get a, a National Institute of Health grant, uh, kind of a fellowship grant to go and sponsored, sponsored me to, to work with Carl Hirsch, the distinguished Swedish professor of biomechanics, who was probably the leading person in the world at that time, given the number of people that he had trained and the number of papers he had written with people who had done research with him. And uh, Dr. Southwick, due to his influence and support and connections with National Institutes of Health, was able to get funding for me to go and live in Sweden and work with Professor Hirsch to do research. Uh, it, as it turned out, my research uh, worked hard, and uh, Dr. Hirsch worked well with him um, and uh, also worked well in, in collaboration with an engineer in Sweden. Uh, which is another story and another bit of good luck. But anyway, with that research uh, group and team, I was able to uh, uh, write a thesis and defend my thesis in Sweden and get a PhD. I also have it on good authority. They say that behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. Uh, <laughs> that that is where you found your lovely wife. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, Sweden, uh, as you probably somewhere in your travels have heard, is is uh, well known for its uh, collection of uh, feminine pulchritude. Interesting country. I, I really uh, very much enjoyed it and appreciated it and, and resonated with, with its culture, actually. And and it's uh, it, it's a... It's a I think, and, and this is subjective, of course, but I, I think it's it's defensible with with certain observations, such certain historical realities. But I think it's a very human, very humane society, somewhat advanced in terms of I think uh, humanitarianism being part of the culture, part of the uh, realities uh, of the country, practices and policies and activities. Uh, of the country, some of which has eroded a little bit in, in more recent years. But uh, uh, still, I think it's uh, ahead of the curve in terms of being a humane society. Before we get too far away from it, you were the recipient of the Fagan Alumni Network Award over at Duke University, and it was dedicated to the late John Fagan. And I believe he was a fellow Vietnam veteran friend of yours. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Well, another stroke of luck. <laughs> I mean, heaven knows how many different assignments I could have had 
during my year in Vietnam. And uh, to be placed in the assignment that I was placed in, uh, I was placed in as uh, an orthopedic surgeon assigned to the 85th Evacuation Hospital. And the CEO of that hospital was Colonel John Fagan, who was an individual who had just finished his orthopedic residency, and I had just finished my orthopedic residency. And uh, there I was, assigned to him, and he just is a great guy. He's a wonderful human being. He was uh, a West Point graduate. He was the first West Point graduate that I, they actually actually went through the whole system that later became their whole algorithm of how they trained people. But what I mean by that is he was able to go to medical school, do his residency, do his, all of his training without it sort of hindering his uh, career as a West Point cadet and as a military West Point graduate and military officer. So there he was. And we had, as I said, just finished our program. But he he was a boss, and I was assigned to the 85th EVAC and under his uh, tutelage, under his leadership. And happily, we just were very, we had good rapport, and we hit it off. We became really, really good friends. But, you know, suppose I... (laughs) Suppose I'd been signed somewhere else, you know, but that that's the way it was. Anyway, he just passed away uh, about a year ago, but uh, he was a real leader in orthopedics, uh, uh, outstanding uh, leader and, 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 and scholar and, and clinician uh, and, and has the, you know, has the curriculum visa to, to prove that. I won't go through all the details, but he's he was an expert on, on the knee. He, he wrote a book uh, in orthopedics, and he started, uh, developed an orthopedic society and uh, made a major contribution to uh, education in that he recognized and expressed the recognition that he that many physicians end up in leadership roles, but there's not a whole lot of leadership training in the medical curriculum. And so he recognized that uh, to pay some attention to leadership skills and leadership education for physicians was very important. And he went on to establish that at his medical school, which is Duke University School of Medicine, and uh, set up a, a fellowship for medical students and residents to be training in a special program that Duke has developed in leadership. And uh, I had the good fortune to be invited to speak out there and to get involved in that program. And John and I corresponded and continued to stay in touch. So that's, that's uh, sort of my contact and my experience with John and his, I got to know his family some and really like, admired, enjoy that. But it was just a good thing that happened that, that we were, Intuitively good friends and 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 uh, in sync with with one another. We we basically studied together a lot where we had downtime, you know, and and we were both studying for our orthopedic board exams, and uh, so that was just a, a good experience. I remember reading an article about him that he uh, soloed a Cessna across the Atlantic both ways. I mean, he sounded like a really interesting. Oh yeah, character. that's right. That's right. 
he, he was a, a outstanding pilot, wasn't he? Yeah. So tell me about your tell me about your practice. I know that uh, it had to have been exciting to put twenty five spine surgeons out in the field and and training them. And uh, just tell me about your practice uh, as you reflect back on your career as a spine surgeon. Any high points, low points, uh, things worth uh, recounting? Well, yeah, you just hit the high point. I think uh, I think of all of my academic career. If I had to pick the one kind of activity uh, that was most enjoyable, most gratifying, it would be having had the privilege of training 25 spine fellows. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, it's an opportunity to, to try to teach people the way you see medicine, the way you try to do medicine, and that is to be uh, uh, empathetic and, and, and considerate and thoughtful and in terms of looking after your patients and in terms of trying to be knowledgeable, to learn from your, your colleagues and from your own study and your own experience, uh, uh, to be able to have the knowledge to, to apply and, and the judgment uh, to help you to make good decisions about whom you operate on and, and what operations uh, uh, you should offer them. And, and then how to best do those operations. It, it, it's, it's fun to, to have someone at your side who's also help, who's helping you, but whom you're helping by trying to uh, transmit that knowledge, uh, uh, as I said, the, the, the theory and the practice of, of medicine, the, the understanding and knowledge of the diseases and the surgical technique for intervening, first of all, all the best decision as to when to, to to intervene with surgery and what to offer surgically, and then a discussion about uh, uh, how you do it and what you offer them, the patient, and and how you go about carrying that out. Uh, so if I, you know, if I have to say what what was the most gratifying part of my academic career, I, I think I probably would say the spine fellowship program, you know, and, 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 and the spine fellows, are, uh, you know, you get to choose, uh, you know, something of their record and, and, and so forth, but they're, they, they're just spending uh, one final year of their training um, to, uh, to be able to do what they're going to do for the rest of their life. And so they are already knowledgeable and, and as quiet as it's kept, it probably should be kept so quiet, but you learn from them as well because they're studying hard and they're trying to learn what they're going to do for the rest of their lives and do it as well as possible. So uh, that's been a very positive, positive experience. I just lost my first one of the spine guys, had a horrendous heart attack about four months ago, and he was one of our most thoughtful and uh, well-spoken and certainly uh, got to know and respect him. He, he went into academic medicine, ran a program. We were in touch. And, uh, but anyway, um, that, that, that is, as, is, as, as it is, but uh, it, it, you know, we got to know uh, them well and they got to know me well <laughs> for the most part. And uh, it certainly for me, was very gratifying. You know, we've seen a lot of breakthroughs in the spine uh, universe lately, uh, different approaches, just on and on and on. Looking back on your career, was there one particular spine procedure that you enjoyed the most? Uh, so I, 
certainly cervical spine I liked. The the gentleman that I told you about at Yale was that was his forte. That was his uh, what he was most well known for was uh, uh, cervical anterior cervical exposure of the spine and and uh, disc removal and and bone grafting implants. And I guess in and around the cervical spine, various kinds of surgery is what I appreciated and enjoyed the most, enjoyed doing the most. And uh, I guess what we published as as much about, again, was in and around the cervical spine and uh, uh, offering scientific and clinical uh, and rational information as to how to evaluate uh, uh, cervical spine problems that relate to what we call instability, which means that the getting back to the mechanics, the mechanical structure is not strong enough to provide the ongoing protection of the neck and the body and the nerves, and therefore uh, needs to be uh, analyzed appropriately. And then uh, various types of spine fusion procedures offered to correct that. And uh, that would be probably one of the areas of our, uh, most that we may be published about and talk about in spine surgery. So I heard about the J. Robert Gladden Orthopedic Society from a wonderful conversation I had with someone I know that you know, Dr. Claudia Thomas. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and, and I got pretty excited when I realized that I am speaking to the founding president, and that is you. <laughs> uh, I would love to hear more about Dr. Gladden and how this organization came into being. Well, actually, Claudia Thomas uh, was a major uh, reality in that. The Gladden Society, J. Robert Gladden, was the first African-American orthopedic surgeon to uh, take and pass and qualify as a board-certified orthopedic surgeon. He worked at Howard. That's part of the story. And uh, I, we, uh, some of our African-American friends and colleagues were very interested in trying to have more diversity and uh, more people of color being trained and, and able to treat patients of color and not patients of color and, and with with uh, spine problems and spine issues. But uh, it wasn't all that easy to get residencies and people were not particularly sensitized or interested in trying to facilitate that. Uh, very unlike today, uh, following the uh, uh, tragedies and the high visibility uh, racial issues that are so prominent in our minds and hearts uh, and hit during these times, um, no one was sort of thinking that way much at all. A very few people were. And we, Claudia and I, and uh, eight or 10 other African-American orthopedic surgeons uh, sort of had uh, concern and interest and wanted to stimulate this and uh, change this, this pra practice and have it be more inclusive of uh, people of color uh, in the training program. And uh, we, act we had a number of meetings uh, and a fellow named uh, Bill Tipton, it's a Caucasian fellow who was secretary of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And uh, by good luck, he had a, a conscience about these things and uh, could relate to it. And we 
uh, we're going to start a committee uh, to look at this. And there had to be there was a large meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, a huge meeting. And this resolution came up and they uh, said, well, uh, ask the nominations from the floor of people to be on this committee. And uh, Claudia stepped up to the plate. And, you know, she wasn't a distinguished professor at that time, but she right. wanted to do the right thing. Long story short, she nominated me to be on this committee. Oh, and, wow. and as a result of her proactive engagement, um, I was on the committee and I began to work and, and I, you know, things evolved such that I ended up being, um, after several more years, the founding president as we developed this uh, J. Robert Gladden Orthopedic Society. Again, probably a little bit longer answer than you wanted, but uh, but that's the, that's the story. Uh, that's a great story. You brought up the word mentor earlier, and it is National Mentoring Month. And that's right. You were you received a mentor award from this very group, the J. Robert Gladden Orthopedic Society, that's in 2020. So tell me, who has been your greatest mentor? Oh my! Well, oh, without a doubt. Well, it's a combination between my mother <laughs> and, <laughs> and and Dr. Wayne Southwick of Yale. Um, okay. And uh, Dr. Southwick um, really, really uh, stepped up to the plate. And and I hasten to add, you thanked me for my service in, in the military. Well, you know, I Dr. Southwick uh, should be thanked for his service. Uh, for advancing humanitarian, egalitarian humanitarian ideals. That is, he did things because he thought they were the right thing to do. And that was his answer. I asked him once why he took the chance of uh, giving me a job. I was the first, as you noted, African-American surgeon, uh, orthopedic surgeon in residency at, at, at Yale. And I, you know, I, I asked him once, uh, this was after I got to know him a little bit, uh, you know, and uh, you know, why he did that. And he sort of paused and he said, well, it, it, it seemed like the right thing to do. We wanted to get the best people we could get. And, and so that's why I did it. Well, it cost him a lot of political capital to make that decision. And then, of course, he did it again with Claudia. Claudia came along and she first African-American female. And uh, he, he offered her a, a, a position as well. He should be thanked. <laughs> For his courage, uh, because he burned up political capital, a lot of political capital among his peers in the medical school for doing that. Uh, anyway, that that is, uh, I think, an important little element of history, and uh, it was very, very uh, helpful. And, and, and there's a little, there's sort of a follow-on to that uh, story. I noticed you thanked me for my service, and, and I uh, thanked uh, Dr. Southwick for his service as well. And I got a, think, a chance to thank him in a, another way, which I'm happy, so happy to share with you. As it turns out, um, his son, Stephen Southwick, is now the incumbent of a named psychiatry professorship at Yale. In other words, his son went on to become, go to Yale, go to medical school, and become a professor of psychiatry and uh, is now a friend of mine uh, and close friend and colleague. But I knew him 
also when he was still in uh, medical school. Actually, he was having some questions he wanted to discuss and so forth. And so his dad said, well, why don't you talk to Dr. White? So Stephen Southwick, a main mentor's son, came to talk to me. And I was able to continue uh, conversation and now an ongoing professional collegiality. But uh, he credits me with being a bit of a mentor for him. And so to be a mentor for your mentor's son is just a joyful, wonderful, wonderful experience. Mentoring is a wonderful experience anyway. But uh, to do it in this context, this realistic context uh, of him, his son saying that I helped him a bit as a mentor when he was coming along, uh, just absolutely uh, is, is so gratifying. And, I'm, and lucky I was to, to have that privilege as well and that opportunity. I just ordered your first book, Seeing Patients, Unconscious Bias in Healthcare, and I very much look forward to reading it. So tell us about it and what inspired you to write it. What inspired me to write it? Uh, well, when I first, one of my first experiences in, in, in medicine, which I haven't, we haven't talked about actually, was uh, when I was uh, working as a, as a medical student, E.H. Crump Hospital in Memphis, which was a newly built hospital for, for black patients. The patients were still segregated in Memphis. And uh, I had an opportunity. It was the summer between my senior year in uh, college and my first year as a medical student. And I was able to get a job at Crump Hospital for, for good kinds of political reasons. That is, people that we know politically who were involved in, quote, unquote, civil rights and new people in the hospital. And they said, you know, we've got this, uh, this young guy who, who's going to go to medical school, wants to be a doctor. You know, is there any way you can get him a job in the hospital? So through these political connections and through that mechanism, I got a job at E.H. Crump Hospital to work in the summer. And uh, the, the, the uh, job I got was called, was as a scrub nurse. And basically that's someone who works in the operating room. You don't have, to, you can be trained sort of almost on the job. You pass instruments to the surgeon and you, you help to, uh, you hold retractors and, and, uh, you, you help the surgeon. It's, it's not a technical, educated thing. You just, uh, that's what you do. Uh, but it, it gave me, obviously, a wonderful uh, quick exposure and realistic exposure. Uh, and, of course, the surgeons at that time were all white surgeons. There were no black surgeons on the staff in the hospital. Uh, but anyway, that was, that was my job, and, and it was a, a wonderful experience. But in that context, I... Um, I recognize some uh, uh, patients being treated in a very inhumane fashion by some of the surgeons in, in some circumstances. Not all of them, not all the time, but uh, too many of them, too many times. And uh, that's the beginning of my 
thinking, hey, you know, you're supposed to, it's not the way you're supposed to treat patients. <laughs> and uh, it was just uh, screamingly uh, obvious prejudice, disrespect for them, for the patients. And and I'm, I'm thinking now of, you know, one particular patient and who um, had cancer and was uh, uh, moving around too slowly and the surgeon yelling at her to get off, you know, get off of the stretching, get on the operating table. He didn't have all day to get, you know, moving around. Anyway, just yelling at a patient. It just, I just remember it very, very vividly. I mean, I'm sure it's not the only time patients uh, got yelled at at that time. But anyway, so that was, that, I would say that was the beginning. And, and maybe even, I mean, it, Consciously, I wasn't saying, well, okay, I'm going to write a book about healthcare disparities. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but that had to be the kind of basis and the basis, really, for me and my life experience. And I, and I had an instant intolerance of that and, and a conscious desire, unconscious desire to do what I can to, to, to change that. And of course, obviously, I'm not alone by any means in that situation. So it, it so it, it followed along, and then uh, you know the situation with Claudia when we wanted to get more people of color involved, and uh, I just realized that uh, this was a reality that was not acceptable, it was unjust and inhumane. And uh, as I had opportunity to do things about it, uh, that's what I did, and uh, I began to. Um, I partnered with my co-author, uh, David Shanoff, who's a, a wonderful colleague that sort of um, is able to take my reminiscences and my verbiage, and, and we worked, worked it together and edited it together, and that way we got through this book, and um, I, I, I just followed through my experiences. Uh, some people say it's autobiographical. That was not my intent, but... I, I was ex- describing my experiences as we went along, and it just takes me through some of the things we're talking about now, you know, through the Vietnam experience, through some of my experiences with uh, working in in hospitals with, with uh, other residents and other types of encounters that I thought were relevant and uh, thought helpful to share uh, with uh, my African-American and my non-African-American colleagues uh, as, as they may relate to ways that might incentivize them to be champions of more humane care uh, as they uh, working with people of a different race. I also ordered your newest book. Congratulations on that, Overcoming. I believe you co-wrote that with David Chanoff and John Lan. Yeah. Uh, Lessons in Triumphing Over Adversity and the Power of Our Common Humanity. I'm starting to see a theme there, just that that humanity and seeing people through that lens and not through some of these other things that we do. And from what I read, uh, you know, you got 20 stories in there of just some amazing people who overcame just some incredible obstacles to get to where they were. And I, I know there's some incredible personal narratives in here. Is there one in particular that resonated with you? I mean, not to diminish anybody else's story, but is there one particular story that jumped out at you? Yeah, that's a... <laughs> That's an interesting question, interesting, and uh, I, I do have sort of trouble answering it because several of them, you know, jumped out uh, in in different ways. 
and I don't know what what criteria to really use in terms of how one is going to decide. Um, sure. The um, Herman Williams is is, is the African American uh, surgeon training, wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon who was playing basketball with some of his colleagues, uh, sand live basketball, so to say, and uh, his colleagues were. I guess one of them happened to be an anesthesiologist. And anyway, he had a huge heart attack. And uh, had he not been playing with, with doctors, he would not have survived. But they were able to resuscitate him and save his life. And uh, he was studying to be an orthopedic surgeon in sports medicine. And uh, anyway, he um, uh, had this massive heart attack and, and had to give up his ambition to be an orthopedic surgeon and, and to work there, but was able to reconstruct his life uh, despite several additional major, extremely painful cardiac incidents uh, and impacting his vision and so forth. And he just kept coming back and kept coming back and kept doing other things that he could do. Apparently, he has a a very uh, compelling, genuine uh, personality with good uh, uh, communication skills and is, is very successful as a, a hospital uh, executive slash consultant uh, conflict resolution. And so I, I, I was impressed with, you know, the repetitive, uh, extremely uh, stressful, uh, frightening painful episodes that he had uh, requiring more surgery. In fact, recently, even since we've written about him in the book, he's had another major surgical procedure. But, uh, you know, he, he gets back and he, he, he's going to go back. He, he's already gone back to work uh, after another major operation. Um, so I, I would offer him, but she, I mean, there's, there's Tom Katina, another physician who's working in, in, in Africa, uh, and doing unbelievable numbers of surgical procedures on on these patients, and in a major in a hospital where there's major ongoing conflict uh, uh, revolutions around him, uh, and he's sort of there with uh, only help from people he's trained and native people, um, and I've been. Uh, very impressed with Tom Katina. In fact, make a note in your footnotes from this um, meeting that I predicted he's going to be a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> oh wow! I will. <laughs> I mean, he's really uh, he's really uh, doing it uh, as a Superman. So like him a lot, uh, but some of the people just just keep coming keep coming back. You know, the 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 young boy not coming back, but courage with Down syndrome. You know, he. He doesn't, he doesn't let anything get in his way. He just goes for it, you know, and no matter, he goes down, he bounces back, and he, he pushes hard. And um, so uh, it, it's hard to choose. It really is hard to choose. I, uh, but I, I've, it's been inspirational, certainly, to um, to see how what these people can overcome. And and it, it sort of it, it has reminded me, of, of how much of our natural anatomic, neurologic, uh, psychological uh, uh, background and realities 
can serve as a source for resilience enhancement. And and I think I think that's good. I think that's encouraging. I mean, not everybody is going to be able to be successfully resilient to this extent uh, with everything that happens to them. But but it's good to be reminded that that there there are resources and and they they are there and they can be utilized and they can be very helpful and very effective. Uh, and of course, there's no guarantee. But I think if you if you look at 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 the the things that people have overcome, A, B, what things have been involved in them overcoming those uh, tremendous obstacles. It, it can be, uh, what should I say, a stimulus for people to look at their own lives and, and, and see what they might have as a resource to, to help them be resilient. Speaking of overcoming obstacles, Jackie Robinson certainly comes to my mind, and I believe it was Dr. Claudia Thomas that referred to you as the Jackie Robinson of orthopedics. Uh, that's good company right there, doctor. <laughs> well, it is, it is. And, uh, yeah, the, and, and people like that, you know, are, uh, a real inspiration. One of the things, I, I don't know what to call it. I don't know how to categorize it other than to call it hero worship. But it thrills me when I see uh, people doing fantastic things. Looking back over your career, has there been one particular thing? And I know this is hard to do, but uh, has there been one particular thing that's given you the most gratification? Well, I think the the Bronze Star in Vietnam certainly uh, was a tremendous boost for me. I mean, I, I was profoundly grateful for that uh, recognition uh, because it involved my medical world and my medical life and, and my respect for other people, you know, what I've taken care of. And and I said, my, my mom, who tried to teach me to, to be respectful of all people, you know, respect, never let it be said that you were not respectful that you treated anyone with disrespect. And uh, so I, I, I guess that would be it. I, I think that would be it. Yeah. Is there anything you would have done differently? No, I don't think so. I, I did. Uh, I was offered a position uh, as as president of University of Maryland at Baltimore Medical Center, which was a huge, huge job. And I uh, went through the whole thing to the point that I was offered the job and had signed on, was prepared to do it. And uh, some of the uh, people on the board uh, made a decision uh, to move one of the schools of the university out of an area where it was extremely effective. And it was clearly a political decision uh, and a racially influenced political decision. And, um, and, and this was done when I was in transition. It was done during a, a two-month period when I, was, when I signed on for the job and, and had even been uh, plan to, uh, you know, as I was coming down to be reimbursed for my work and the transition, et cetera, et cetera, I took it and saw it and, and analyzed the situation to say, okay, do you want to spend your life fighting racism under, in a situation of underwhelming odds where, you know, you don't have a good fighting chance and do you want people to jerk you around <laughs> in this kind of situation? And they've been, They've already showed you what they're going to do and what they can do, and you want to go into this situation. 
So I thought about it and I thought about, well, you know, I, I, uh, I decided to uh, make uh, one of my appointments to go down and ask to speak to some of the people when I went. My hospital here was did a wonderful job of, of asking, helping someone to go with me to help me to kind of move around. And, and, and I asked for uh, a, a press conference. And I uh, respectfully uh, analyzed the thing more or less as I did now and decided to uh, resign and, and not take the position. And I got back on the plane, went back home. And the, the press was very supportive of my decision. No one said, you know, I was a bad guy for doing it. But I did it because I didn't want to fight. I wanted to be a, a leader. <laughs> But I didn't want to fight racism for for uh, the rest of my career, or however much of my career. So, uh, if I if I if I try to answer your question, I would say uh, I do ask myself sometimes. Well, I wonder what would have happened if you had decided to go down and fight. I must say, the black community that uh, you know was in any way relevant uh, had been very supportive. Who knows the outcome? And I knew that I had, uh, I knew what I had at Harvard <laughs> and I knew what life was like. And uh, so I, I, I stuck with it. So the answer to the question is, question mark, question mark, question mark. Maybe, you know, I ask myself sometimes, should I have done it? Should I have taken the, the challenge? Uh, and uh, I come out on, on saying, hey, I'm glad I, you know, quality of life has been really good. <laughs> and uh, I've been able to do some uh, some other things so, again, it's kind of a long answer to your question, but there it is. One thing that I wanted to ask you, I, I was looking through your CV and, and everything from the McVeigh Award, captain of your wrestling team, and Dean's List, highest scholastic achievement, a senior football. I could go on and on. JC's 10 outstanding young men. You just seem to be excellent at everything you did and really put your – your hand to the plow and, and, and be the best that you could be in that scenario. And I'm just curious, where did that drive? Because Dr. Doerr talked about that uh, with me, just that, that drive to excel. Where, where do you lay that at the feet of? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, it's funny. I, it, it is as though I, uh, I was thinking, gee, hey, I want to be, I want to, you know, I want to be better than anybody. I, I, you know, I want to be president of fraternity. I don't want anybody else to be president of fraternity. I want to do that. <laughs> right. I mean, for a selfish, it, it wasn't a selfish thing. I think it was It was just trying to do the best I could on a day-to-day basis. And that was the gratification that I, if I felt like I was getting something right, you know, did I do it right? Did I get it right? Uh, and doing it as, as, as best I could as opposed to saying, you know, checking off boxes. I, I don't really know, but but I really, I was not politically, you know, like the president of fraternity. I was not strategically saying, okay, well, if I help this guy, maybe I can be president. If I vote for this, maybe I can be president. But I was saying, if I can be a good pledge master, by my own standard, if I can do a good job and feel like I did some good and, 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 yeah, whatever it is, made the people feel good, uh, made the people, you know, do good uh, example or good reputation for fraternity, whatever. So I guess it was just an ongoing 
habitual desire to do to do to do things as well as I could. You know, I I, I I guess that's it. I mean, I'm not sure what it should be or what it could have been, but uh, I, I just wanted to do the best I can every day. And uh, you know, well, if you're on the football team, you want to play as much as you can play. You know, you want to be as uh, you're competing with another guy for a position and uh, he wants to play and you want to play. So, but you should do your best. You don't want to just hang back and, and, and not try, you know, that's the, um, that's not what the competition is for. That's not what the game is for. So I, I can't tell you more than that you know, as to uh, what was the drive other than to do the best I could. Uh, at whatever I'm involved with. You have done just that over your amazing career, and my hat's off to you, sir. Well done. Well, thank you. I appreciate I appreciate that. And, of course, I, I enjoy being well thought of and appreciated in, in, in my work and what I've done. I do feel very fortunate, and I, and I, I do I give a lot of credit to Lady Luck, though. So. <laughs> I really do. It's it's amazing. I mean, some of the the details of if something had gone a little bit different than it did, you know, how much uh, less of an outcome there might have been in a positive way. And so I'm grateful for that. And and also, as part of that gratefulness, I want to help others. And and, and of course, the whole gratification of, of much of what we do certainly is if we can feel like we're helping our fellow humans that is very gratifying of course and that's one of the re- one of the things that's great for medicine and medicine by no means the only place you can find that that's for sure but uh, but it is uh, kind of an instant reward and and uh, when it gets to be a broader reward it's uh, much appreciated much appreciated One of the things that we are appreciative of is that we just got to truly hear from one of the greats. One of my favorite Dr. White stories is back in 1956. Delta Upsilon, a fraternity that he had pledged, chose to cancel their national convention rather than have him attend. And three decades later, there's a plaque on his wall that recognized him for speaking at that very fraternity's national convention. It took three decades, but he finally got his invite. I love this quote by him. You've got to be very keenly aware of the minuses, but the minuses don't bring a whole lot of joy. But the pluses do bring joy. And somehow I have been fortunate in being able to see and focus on the best of everyone I meet. Now, if that's not suitable for framing... I don't know what is. So as we close up shop, a huge thank you to Dr. White for coming on the show. A huge thank you, Device Nation, for making us part of your podcast rotation. So as we go into this week, let's all be active observers. Look at your gifts from all sides. Let's be tactically paranoid in a good way. I had a surgeon tell me once, it's not paranoia. Device nation. If it's real, let's avoid familiarity pitfalls in all of our relationships. And most importantly, let's all 